out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you to the end of time. Well, no, just the end of this interview. It does go on probably quite a long time. Anyway, as you know, we love our indie pop and we love our guests. And this week it's going to be the turn of the Birmingham bass band Medium Medium because I very recently spoke to guitarists. It is the one and only Andy Ryder to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Andy, it's over to you. And just to say, his vocal sounds great. Mine doesn't sound so brilliant. But anyway, it's him you need to listen to, not me. Make notes. I will test you at the end. Andy, tell us more. Tell us now. Well, I, I was lucky that my cousin was 10 years older than me. And he introduced me to ton of music in the in the 60s when I was a kid a real kid but the thing that bowled me over was uh Jimi Hendrix right my god that, yeah Axis Boulder's Love that that record is is still one of my all-time favorites yes well that's a very amazing good start in life really isn't it because because my brother I've got an older brother and this was more like in the 70s as that progressed that decade and he was seven years old and he was very into prog rock so Bizarrely, I, I do have, you know, at the say age of 10 to 11, I was I was playing a lot of his records when he was out of the house. So, because he'd banned me from going in his room, but I would go in and sort of play, you know, Yes and Genesis, Wishbone Ash. Park, park. <laughs> that, that, that's very familiar, a familiar territory. My older brother would ban me from touching his guitars, uh, ban me from playing his LPs. And I would do the same thing. When he went out, I would play everything. And yeah. he was, was very much into music. He was a music. He's a musician too. So um, I got to listen to tons of music. It, it was an obsession. Yeah, absolutely. And were your parents at all musical? Um, my granddad was in choirs all of his life. Um, my mum could sing, but, and that's about it. Right. Um, so so was, as, a, as a household, because when we were sort of growing up, this was in the countryside in East Anglia, and it was kind of very working class in that way, that I think when my parents got married in the 50s, they kind of sold everything, you know, the records, the, the record player and anything. Right. Just because no one had debt, you know, working class people generally tried to avoid having debt or anything like that. Um, so it was that kind of philosophy in life. And, and so we didn't get a record player in the, in the bungalow until the very early 70s. And that was when, you know, they bought a few records and then my brother started bringing records into the house. And then obviously Top of the Pops was a huge thing and seeing people like Alice Cooper and Schools Out was, was a major moment in life because it yeah. felt so rebellious as well as Crazy Horses by the Osman. So um, I remember all those. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was very influ influenced by my elder sister too, who was into soul, soul music, you know, 60s soul all the way through to The Temptations, that, that kind of stuff. So I've always had a, a big influence of... of black dance music, if you will. Yes. I think that turned me on to funk and got me in that direction. Yeah. So when did you sort of pick up a guitar and start to, um, you know, because that's kind of... I was probably... I, I would steal my brother's guitar while he was out. So it, I would be probably about 13. Right. I didn't do it very seriously. Um, I didn't get into bands until 
um, until I was about 17. Right. But, and, and I really started um, thinking about practicing properly at age 15. I was getting serious about it. Yes. 17, 18, I was playing in, you know, club bands, doing covers. And, um, and then I joined a funk band. I was the little white guitar player in the in this funk band, and we we toured all over RAF bases and USAF bases, and playing funk funk music covers of uh, you know all the great funk stuff. Well, I mean, that was they, uh, that hmm? must have been that must have been a fantastic sort of money earner because I know in the was it eighties or nineties there was the film that came out, and suddenly there was all these kind of cover bands that appeared because there was just a sort of market for them, which I can't remember what the film was called now, but it was very, oh, um, yes, there was a, there was a few, quite a few bands in this area who just kind of dropped what they were doing and became a covers band quite quickly because there was just a very good market. And also, like you said, there was a few Air Force bases in East Anglia, which you Yeah, I, 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 I'm trying to remember the ones we played at in East Anglia, but I know we did. There was Bent Waters and there was probably another one but that was down in Suffolk. So um, so why that stage? Because I did an interview once with Fast Eddie from Motorhead and he said that he was in a very early band who would just tour and play a lot. And that's where he really learnt, you know, how, what it was to, to be a musician or what it was going to be like if he was going to go on, which he did with, with Motorhead. So did that sort of, was that a great, you know, apprenticeship that period? Yes, absolutely. Ordeal by fire, really. Um, <laughs> I, I was always catching up. I was, I was always a, a bit, not, not slower to, as a guitar player, but I, I was, I was lazy. But I just would like to be on stage, and that was the main thing that I wanted to do it for. Yeah, uh, I, I, I became quite, quite good at the end, and and um, we we ended up touring Europe too. Germany, more Air Force bases, tons of American bases. So that was great. And um, it taught me how to be in a band. And, yes. and it, it, it was quite funny because we all, we all wore, you know, like Funketeer costumes, you know, capes. And um, I, I wore a fur coat and, and, um, and Doc Martens. It was, it was kind of a strange band, but it was, it was, it was a big influence on where I wanted to go with music. That's fantastic. A bit George Clinton meets um, oh, the Bell. He's one of my heroes. Yes. Well, there you go. Blimey. I once saw George Clinton when I went to Berlin to sort of visit a friend and um, it was an amazing gig. Three hours yeah. of absolute sort of psychedelic rock, you know. Yeah, I, I saw Funkadelic in Parliament when I was only 14 or 15, something like that. So were you one of those people who just picked up the guitar and immediately it, you could just make it do its thing and also pick up, you know, what you're supposed to do to make a sound? It, it took a while, but yes. I mean, I, I, I'm naturally musical, I think. I, I can play keyboards and I can play the drums a little bit and um, I sing fairly well. It's, it's definitely innate. Um, but it was hard at first, like anybody who starts the guitar, you have to have the, you know, the physicality, you have to get your fingers, you know, calloused and learn chords and all that stuff, you know. Yeah, well, absolutely. And also to learn. But chords. I was obsessed with it. I have to say, I was going, I was about to start um, art college and I was 
working gigs at night, going to college for a bit. Um, and then I, I, I dropped out of art college and got a, got a job and was still playing gigs all over the place. Yes, blimey. You, you, then you, by what, 1979, I, 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 I saw uh, the press who were to become medium medium. And I said, well, I, I want to do that. And they had a guitar player at the time and I joined and they changed the name to Medium Medium and um, the other guitar player left. And so I was in this band all of a sudden. It was fun. Yes. So were you, did you, was Nottingham your sort of hometown? Yeah, I was born there. Right, blimey. I, blimey. Were you quite a big football fan as well? Not really. Uh, you know, my elder, my my elder brother and my younger brother are big Forest fans, even today. But uh, you know, I've been over here for so long, I don't really um, follow football anymore. Well, I think things like football is a bit like watching Wimbledon and the Olympics. It was kind of something that one did. I can remember when I was young, getting very excited about those kind of event, events and sort of following football to a degree because it was just kind of, there wasn't so many distractions, I suppose, in life at that right. stage, the 70s. But then, so in the sort of late, say, 79, you joined Medium Medium. Did that sort of, were, were the band already kind of, um, did they already have a sound? Because they'd obviously been about, you know, a, the press before they were. The, the, the press were, were pretty, punky but they were a bit more um what's the word a bit more old-fashioned r&b punky you know that kind of thing yes rock and rolly if you will simple you know 12 bar type sounds um but they did have a couple of things that interested me because they, they were slightly funky and the drummer was really funky and he could really play uh, and um but they only had a local following, the press. But uh, John, John Reese Lewis, he he was pretty keen to make make it serious, um, and that's what happened, really. Yeah, because it was quite. A, it's interesting because there was the sort of new New York scene that I think they called No Wave scene, wasn't it? Because yeah, there was, there was a label, wasn't there? Z Records, which was kind of started there, and they did a lot of very sort of. Uh, abstract and slightly curious kind of stuff, James Chance and the contortions and people yeah. like that. So they kind of brought in that very funky and then Kig Creole and the coconuts. So there was that kind of scene that was going on, which I suppose we didn't pick up, well, I didn't, but um, it was diff more difficult to find that stuff at the time because, you know, we didn't have the internet. But P I know Brian Eno had gone over to New York and brought out one of those albums, which I think you can get on Soul Jazz Records now. So were you sort of finding that that is an influence because the punk scene that had happened in 76, 77 had pretty well started to get kind of quite shabby by the 70s. Yeah, I have to say the, the punk thing was a real catalyst for me to change and, and be, you know, have a, a kind of attitude to, toward music instead of playing, you know, sweet soul music and definitely, you know, hearing um, Gang of Four just stop me in my tracks. That band were just amazing. Yes. So when you heard Andy Gill, was Andy Gill somebody that you went, hmm, that's interesting? Oh, absolutely. I was definitely, um, we, we were definitely uh, on the same furrow. Yes, absolutely. Because I guess, I mean, I know... Similar influences. 
I mean, it's kind of quite, not lazy, but well, it's quite lazy, isn't it? But you had that sort of post-punk period, didn't you, with Magazine Gang of Four, you know, the Nightingales, the Cravats, you know, and, uh, and bands like that, and the very things, and the form. So did you, I mean, were you aware of that kind of sound and started to sort of gravitate towards it? Yes. And I'd also been a, a big reggae dub fan, and that influenced me a lot. I would have a, a you know echo on everything, um, <laughs> and uh, our fifth member Graham was in the band, but he was the sound guy, so he he would do dub mixes at the at the uh, at the gigs, and that was a big big thing for us. You know the dub thing, the the reggae dubs and sound effects. He would play sound effects that would be echoed all over the place. Um, in the manner of, uh, you remember the pop group? Yes. Yeah. We were all prostitutes. Yeah. Because it was a bit later, but I don't know if this might have, it's probably in the 70s, but then, you know, I suppose I was obsessed with John Peel. So we had, you know, people like Augustus Pablo and Lee Scrapsbury, yeah. and then, you know, yeah. Robbie and people like that. But I do remember an Augustus Pablo album with Meet King Tubby, Uptown Rockers or something like that, which I haven't heard for probably six months. I can't quite remember, but it was one of those seminal albums that we all sort of got into at the time. And I remember in the eighties, especially, there was a real roots reggae vibe that went around the university circuit with, you know, people yeah. like Vernon Spear and uh, Misting Roots and Aswad. And, we, we, um, we played many gigs with Aswad. We, we played loads of gigs with Aswad. We loved them. Yes. Well, there's a classic. I do remember John Peel playing live and direct, which was that, mm. you know, a live album and it was just fantastic. I went and immediately bought it and you know loved every sort of track on it. And there was a few other bands we were kind of they were they were I suppose they were just English guys. There was one called the Rhythm Rhythm Mites who I really liked from the West Country as well. And I suppose there was a lot of white guys who started making reggae music. They were some, let's face it, just smoking a lot of coke as well. So um and there was a there was the sort of travelers, I don't know if you remember the the travelers and the squat movement in the 80s as well that started to happen. So obviously People need yeah, a soundtrack for that period as well. Yeah. So yes. that was all good. So when you when you sort of entered into the band, obviously they, they'd already been slightly established and knew, knew each other. How did the dynamic kind of change and how did you sort of cope with that? I, I, I think my influence turned the band into a more groove-based rather than typical song-based rock band, if you will, and definitely long grooves with crazy stuff over the top. It was always like, that was, that was definitely my influence on the band. Right. So much so that, that I think that's why the other guitar player left, because he was more traditional. And, and um, yeah, that's it. I mean, like, for instance, um, Hungry So Angry, I, I definitely was the guy who put the rhythm together and, yes. and the basic idea of, of the song except for the words of course but um, simple grooves with only maybe three or four chords not much changing um, and of, oftentimes they were if you if you, uh, you may we've got a song called okay we go which is which is fairly dark and uh, I think uh, and Serbian village uh, another song very dark um lyrics from john and um we i 
I don't know how. I don't know how hungry, hungry so angry was. Um, it was popular. It was always a hit on stage, but um, most of our other material was was dark and long and chaotic in, in terms of what went over the top of the grooves. Mm -hmm. Usually funk based, kind of punky, funky, you know. Yes. And you'd have to talk more with John Reese if you can get a hold of him. He's a uh, a little elusive these days, so he's up in Canada. Right. <laughs> I know everyone's slightly sort of, yes, it's all, it's all is, it's quite interesting, isn't it, really? So because I suppose at that stage, we'd sort of got David Bowie's Young Americans, which had got that sort of Philly sound, and then obviously Bowie did Low as well, which was quite an interesting album with people like, I don't know if Robert Fripp was on that particular album. But yes, was, he was. I, I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big Bowie fan. I, Bowie's been kind of, an influence on everything I've ever done, really, I think. Yes, well, he, he was always very good at getting good guitarists, wasn't he? He yes. often said he, you know, when he, when, he get, when he got Mick Ronson, he wanted his, you know, that was his Jeff Beck, so to speak. And then he worked yes. with people like Earl Slick, and there was another guy called Adrian, is it? Adrian Ballou. Yeah, he, Ballou. Was, he yeah. was absolutely stunning. And then he worked, obviously, with those funk guys on Let's Dance. So he was always very keen to sort of, find somebody to you know work with and then he sort of got into his jazz phase towards the end as well so yes know, he was always quite interesting but I just wondered how how those kind of stages happened or influenced you in the 70s or into the early 80s because by then he'd already as you were somebody who was so obsessed with music whether you'd already started to sort of pick up his different styles and the way that he sort of mixed and merged stuff De definitely we we were influenced by bowie as as everyone should have been i think <laughs> yes He's well, just it, like... well it is quite boggling because i you know as i mentioned his you know the first single was bowie and then the first album was changed as one so he was kind of my first love so i stuck with him but then looking back as, as one does as well because actually I, I mean i was quite young so i missed the first period but then realized that in in the 70s he, he just sort of released one album a year 10 years which is quite amazing um toured several times also produced a few other people's work relocated yeah. and and i just thought i just don't quite know how he did it also made several films as well including the man who fell to earth so he was quite busy during that period and keeping it together but then you had obviously been on the road and playing music for nearly three or four years before you were in uh the band as well so you must have also been able to sort of Cope with this, the sort of some of the hazards that pick, you know catch people because it's often not just the rock and roll lifestyle; it's also the boredom and also the practice and also the you know getting to gigs, you know, and get yeah, together and cope. It with was something. It was something I really wanted to do. I, I, I was meant to do it at that time in my life, and it was the one thing I really wanted to do. So I did it. Um, yeah, I mean, we we all fell foul a little bit of, um, you know, um, illegal substances and stuff like that and maybe drinking too much and, you know, but what was I? I was 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, around that age. That's the time when you experiment with those things. If you, I, I think musicians, artists have that um, propensity. Yes. And also, yeah. it's not—it's not a very um, normal lifestyle, is it? You're not keeping normal hours and hanging out right. with quite normal people. You know, it's not like you having to get up at seven thirty and 
get to a desk or get to a factory or something for sort of a eight or nine o'clock and then right. sort of have to deal with that you know you have a certain you have a lot more freedom i guess during the day to do whatever you want yes and have we, we, we were always when, when we were touring in europe we, we were always the type of band who would get up and go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam or go to a, a museum or an art gallery. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be down the, the nearest bar all the time. We, we, we were, you know, like Alan, the bass player, he was um, an economist from, he was at Cambridge. He went, you know, you know so he, there was a, an intellectual quality in the band that was, uh, kept us from being um, rock and rollers. Yes. <laughs> which helped with which helped with the, the writing the material yes and when you went to go for, uh, to record the first album which was going to be the glitter house did you by then yeah. did you say steve was already your sound man so was he going to be producing that particular album or the engineer who's steve no who was the guy you mentioned who, who was the um, it wasn't steve was it it was was it graham who was the Graham Spink, he was in the band, but he, he was off stage and he was more like an Eno character, if you will. Right. He, he shaped our sound from, from the mixing uh, desk. Right. But he didn't produce any of the records, but he co-engineered a lot of this stuff, especially later on. Um, the first single, Hungry So Angry, had already been recorded uh, <clears throat> in a, a London studio. Um, was that Them and Me? Them or Me? No, Them or Me was was um, before that. That was that was just about when I joined. And that song they already had in the press, but we turned it into a more reggified, echoey song. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard it, but... Uh, and that was our calling card to get a deal with Cherry Red, who allowed us to record Hungry So Angry. Got you. There you go. And they were your first label as well for the, for the, yeah. for the album. So so they didn't your... really like us. They didn't really understand us at all. We weren't a fit, as they would say these days. Yeah. But they, they, they definitely gave us some money to record an LP, and we went out into Wales, North Wales, in the hills of Wales, and we recorded the Glitter House. Was that, that, so that wasn't Rockfield then? No, it was um, Fall Studios, F-O-E-L Studios. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Yeah. So who did you find to produce your album? Well, Dave Anderson, who'd actually been in Hawkwind, ran Fall Studios. You remember Hawkwind? Oh God, yes, I know. We love um, and he was a member of Hawkwind for a while, and he kind of helped us co-produce that record. He definitely engineered it. Yes. But, but the single, Hungry So Angry, was, um, was recorded by a totally different guy. Um, his name is escaping me, and I feel terrible. Um, he's, he's well known on the, 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 the white dub circuit. What's his name? Oh, Adrian Sherwood. Adrian Sherwood. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wanted to stay in London yeah. with him the whole album. But there was um, a bit of a, an argument about how we should do it. And the uh, consensus was that we should go 
to North Wales and you know hide ourselves away so we weren't we weren't um, tempted to you know hang out and in, in London and not do the work. Yes. So was this a residential place, a bit like Rockfields? Yes. It's it, we we definitely stayed there. I think it only took us a week. I think it was that. Yeah, and we we and we would go down to the local pub to eat dinner and continue working through the night. Yes. It was a great time. I would imagine that was probably one of the great moments of, well, hopefully. Well, being the first album is often quite the honeymoon phase as well, isn't it? Let's face it. So what, did you have the, the, I think it was about six, no, seven songs on this particular album? Yeah, there's, there's Hungry So Angry, a, a different version. Serbian Village. The Glitter um, House. The Glitter House. Yeah, before that it was Guru Maharaji. We, that was a big, um, a, a big dub kind of. Um, it, it ended up turning into a slow dubby, very trance-like song that had been a very fast punk song before that. Yeah. And that, that kind of stuff, and then we slowed it right down, and it became a a, a, a big hit on stage. It was like the the song we always finished up the set with. Yes. What was what was and the then, what was your audience like? Who were, who were the members of a of the crowd? Well, um, most of it was you know colleges and universities at that point. Yes. So a mixed bag of we didn't have a huge following, but we did have a, we got a huge following in Germany and Holland and Belgium, um, and that was because they, they had better clubs. They had a, a real network of good clubs, like uh, in Amsterdam, there's the, the, the Milky Way or the Melchweg um, and um, Paradiso and places in Rotterdam. They all had a great club scene. So we ended up playing in Europe more than playing in England. Yes. And also, I think, Probably by that period, there was also a band called the X in Holland, weren't there? Who was sort of one of those anarcho-punk outfits. Yeah, I who, seem to recall that. Who, um, yes, who, who had a lot of prints. Did the band have prints? Did you have, because the 80s, let's face it, we were quite angsty in the 80s, weren't we? And there was a lot of political oomph going on. So um, was there a sort of a strong ethos to the band? Was there a political edge to it or... Yeah, a, a, a little spiritual one. Spiritual edge, because because obviously your your track called Guru Maharaji is um it has that sort of vibe that it could sort of be some sort of well you know stating the obvious really aren't I <laughs> some spiritual growth going on here. I, I think I think given that John Reese wrote the words as a punk song. Um, yeah, how does it go? I've heard the message, I'll be all right at the end of the tunnel, divine light is a, a couplet from that. I think he he definitely, he he actually came from a, a, a folk background initially, John right. did. And then, then, then he picked up the sax when he discovered David Bowie. I, I know that for a fact. Um, but um, yeah, I, I would say it's something spiritual for him. Guru Maharaji, yeah. Yes. Well, there's also tracks called Further Than Funk Dream and also that high cue. So obviously you were quite an intellectual band, weren't you? Yes. 
Yes, we, we all we are. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to hide that a little bit, you know. I would imagine, well, slightly apart from your, you know, because it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because there was a, I don't know, there was a member of the band called Ita who were quite, out. they were very young. They were right there at the very beginning of punk, but he said he just got really fed up with suddenly everyone, you know, the punk scene, you had to dress like you know, Sid Vicious basically. And when he saw his audience, he just kind of went, oh God, I don't even want to go on stage tonight. I just haven't, you know, <laughs> that's just a depressing sight. So it's obviously, it's kind of interesting how sort of important your crowd or your fans are. So I just wondered if you'd sort of also bonded with your, your audience, so to speak. Definitely, definitely. And uh, m most of them were, were were there because they like dub reggae, I think, um, and probably spliffs, yes. if I'm honest. I remember those reggae gigs you'd walk in, there was just a smell of dope, it wasn't there really. And the yeah. massive bass bin. Often people used to bring their little children and be standing in front of them. I often wonder if they're still, if they're, they're hearing this completely yeah. down now. It's a very yeah. strange one. People have to take their children to bed. Perhaps they can get a baby. Th and things, things used to be really loud too. I, I, I was always having a problem because um, while I was doing this, playing music, I was also learning how to engineer. So I was always aware of like trying to protect my ears, but it was difficult. Um, and I, that's what I went on to be is a, a sound engineer. Right. That's, my living since since not being a, a musician full-time so it, it, in my early 30s I, I I became a studio engineer and I've done that ever since in, in fact over the last 20 years I've I've been recording classical music you know chamber music and orchestral stuff in America so it's it's, it's a big big arc <laughs> always because during that time which was you know it's quite interesting having looked you know, at it and slightly experienced it because you know Thatcher gets in on in '79, doesn't she? Into power, and during, yeah. during the early '80s we had the Falkland War. Then there'd been the miners' strike. During that period, there was also those schemes like the Enterprise Alliance scheme and the um, oh, terrible, terrible. We hated all that. We hated it, and we and we did rock against racism gigs. We did a lot of those. Right. And you know there was the the poll tax and all that horrific stupidity. Um, yeah, we we often played, you know, benefit gigs, political left wing shows. Yes. Even in Italy, we played some shows, and they were all promoted by the the Communist Party, the Socialist Party there. So we were we were keen left lefties, definitely. <laughs> this SWP, you were probably there, weren't you? The Socialist Workers Party. Eating TVP and being vegetarians, and uh, yeah. yes, uh, did you get involved with Red Wedge as well? No, I don't think we did. No, that was Billy Bragg, and um... that was Billy Bragg. Yeah, that was probably after the our band had just about self ignited, really. Yeah, because what I didn't, what I've noticed during this show is that you know a lot of bands, especially the eighties, which is kind of I suppose the era that I'm particularly into, um, you know, they have that five year narrative. They get together, they have twelve months. Sometimes, and you know, it's a bit of a cliche being on the dole with the enterprise allowance scheme or some such thing yeah. that would give you a year and you could sort of put anything down as long as you had one thousand pound in your bank account, which I always thought was quite amusing. Yeah, that, that was <clears throat> mysteriously appeared. Going, oh look, we haven't been working on the side. 
<laughs> and uh, and yeah, then, we, know, we they, all we all did sign on the dollar lot on and off during even during when we were touring because we, we only made money when we played shows. So um, and then the rest of the time we were rehearsing. So that's when we probably sign on the doll. Yes, well, you could also do it by post in that in those days as well. So yeah. <clears throat> send off a little sort of coupon and they put the money, oh, I don't know, they probably sent you a check, didn't they? Some sort of weird little check. Yeah, but so with that, that 80s kind of narrative, often, you know, like the 12 months, you know, get the single, if it's a bit quirky and, and scratchy and a bit odd, John Peel would give it a play, then the, the John Peel session, that's good. You know, lots of tours, because what I realised doing it, you know, that we had the gatekeepers, didn't we? We had you know, John Peel, there was three weekly yeah. music papers, which obviously Americans just think, oh my God, you have, you know, weekly, yeah, it, not just this monthly thing. And every town and venue, every town and city had, a you know, an indie night venue on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So that it gave a lot of bands that initial push to think that at least we're making progress to that first album. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what the arc was hopefully going to be for us. But what really happened was we recorded The Glitter House and I didn't like it. I didn't like the way it had been recorded. And there was, you know, we're arguing and arguing. And then so all of a sudden, John and Nigel, the drummer, they left and formed Cacat Trance and left me. Uh, the, the rest of the boys are saying, oh, uh, who's going to sing then? And so I, I had to become the singer as well. So the next chapter of the medium, medium thing was... Um, just trying to get more exposure in England and we couldn't get it. So we ended up recording another EP in Holland. And, um, and then we, we went to America because that time, you know, Hungry So Angry had got to whatever chart it was. The, the, the billboard disco chart it came in at 48, 48 I think. And, um, that enabled us to go to America and tour. That's and so that, impressive. Yeah. So when and, you, because just so jo, jo, before John, before John and uh, Nigel left, we did a first tour with them, and then they told us at the end of the tour that they were leaving to make a different band because they weren't happy about how the band's direction was, and and then it was fell to me for to soldier on and see if I could make it work and we got the keyboard player in and we started to try and be a bit more new wavy uh, new romantic-y you know pop and um, ended up in New York City with being produced by some recordings produced by Duke Booty who was in Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five Ed Fletcher is his real name but he he helped us record these things uh, with um, that the were really great recordings that never got released. And then pretty much by 83, I, 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 I quit because I was, I was a bit messed up, actually. I, I wasn't in, you know, I'll say in fewer words, I, you know, I, I was a bit dis disillusioned and yes. I came home to England and didn't do anything for the next two, three months. I was, I think a depression had hit. So, you know, but I, I got over it. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, I mean, well, I, I suppose there's quite a few bands. I mean, I have to say, I think, you know, there was one, well, quite, I think 
a lot of people I spoke to who were in a band for sort of five to ten years and then one day it finishes spend you know often said they just cut their hair very short walked around for about a year feeling like completely I've got nothing you know I've got no CV I've got no skills I've just been touring in a van going around Europe getting some, getting some big gigs you know like Reading or even Glastonbury you know all the usual sort of art centres and possibly university circuit you know releasing a little bit longer than just one album but say three or four and then suddenly you know and it's the usual kind of classic classic cliche that suddenly they realize they 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 owe some the tax man basically a massive bill because the manager's kind of cocked it up and someone and they've had to sell all their instruments as well so they yeah. feel more you know like if that wasn't bad enough that you've got no identity and you don't you don't have that calendar of things to look forward to you know it's literally a year yes. just for the ones in the streets I, I i did i did feel that that kind of sentiment at the time I, it felt that way to me but I, I really didn't let it get the better of me and I, I, I worked towards other projects because by that time I was engineering so I had things to do music to accomplish so but that feeling of when you've been playing lots of tours and then it stops you don't know what to do with yourself yes feeling and it, and it, it can be quite destructive but um, I was lucky enough to have some good friends who, who you know, em employed me in recording studio. So yeah, and some, well, that's, something that's quite, to that's quite a story, actually, isn't it? I mean, it's quite you know, we don't realise what it can it is yeah. and be like, especially when you when you've committed so much. And during that period, because obviously, I say obviously, it's not that obvious, but you know, you know, indie pop, you know, you've got that po punk and then the post punk world. And then, you know, those other bands that start to appear like, you know, Simple Minds and uh, Julian Cope and U2. But then 83, right. the Smiths appear. And there's suddenly, I kind of put it down as the indie pop world happens for five years where the Smiths are kind of 24-7. Yeah. They release an album, touring, you know, they're everywhere. And then they break up, ecstasy hits, you know, suddenly the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds is you know, don't want the you know don't want the music that was three or four years ago you know like hip you know right you know it's kind of interesting what uh, that kind and of and it turns it turns into house music and then it turns into rave and stuff like that yeah I I I really didn't get into rave I, I was I think I was too old for that by that time <laughs> it wasn't my kind of thing but do you but during that period then as the eighties progressed did you think Crikey, I should be, I should still be doing it, you know, because I, I, I should be in, you know, I could, I could be a, you know, a contender, to quote a film. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually got another band together for a while called, called Scare Hunters. Um, and we, we did some gigs, but I, I, I was just, um, I'd lost my um, will to, to succeed. I think in that direction, it, and the music, the music that was coming out, it it had changed, and nobody was interested in what what I was trying to write and and release, and so I, I kind of gave up really. I think for a while, yeah. and just just concentrated on recording in the studio. And does that mean that you still have you know um, the recordings that you made during that particular period that? never got released um they are about somewhere i'm not quite sure where they are i don't have them um 
they've been released on some compilations um, um, but the two or three that I really liked I, I don't know where the masters are at all so they're probably lost <laughs> <laughs> lost yes I don't know it's it's kind of a I've noticed re very recently, and you must have seen it as well. There's, you know, there's there's a kind of a, a period of passing, a passing of time of twenty five to thirty years, where I think when things happen, you know, we just kind of move on, and the next, you know, there's, there's other exciting things like getting houses together and homes and relationships, and some people have children, and you know, just careers and stuff like that. And then there's there's been a, quite a few kind of documentaries, films, and books made about the eighties that. I'm sure we wouldn't have been interested remotely in about 10 years ago, but suddenly they become fascinating. There was one on The Wedding President and George Best. There was the Nightingales film that came out, King Rocker. There's been one on The Go-Betweens and The Chills right. and The Slits and The Dolly Mixtures. And there's been loads of books that have just been started to come out of people sort of either writing the book, you know, like Neil Taylor or Richard King has done books on the sort of indie scene. And lots of photographers have obviously been looking through their kind of archives and shoeboxes and have just gone, oh, actually, these are quite good photos. And no one would have been interested. I did an interview with the guy who did, um, oh yeah, Kevin Cummins, who did the Sex Pistols. He went there and saw the Sex Pistols, Sex Pistols on Christmas Day in 1976 and said no one was really interested in those photographs. The same with Joy Division, you know, you, you would get a few quid for them. Yeah. But then, you know, with time, it's like, okay, now they're gonna be worth lots of money, but you have to look at it as a 20 or 30 year investment, really. Right. No. Yeah. So it's quite a tricky one. But I just was wondering if you were also looking at sort of what you did with the band and thinking, actually, yes, yeah, it'd be quite nice to sort of put it together. Did you ever do a John Peel session? We did not. We were we were planning to do do it when when John and Nigel left the band. So that kind of got nixed. Um, but you know, I, I would have loved to done a John Peel session now. I thought John was absolutely amazing. I, I, I was a, a devotee and I would listen every evening. He was on big influence. I, I, I miss him to, even today. He's a, it's a sad loss that he died so young. Yes, God, I did. I mean, I've been hopeless ever since because I, I don't know where to go to find new music. So I'm just a bit... Well, weird. people approach music so much differently now these days, you know, with the internet and you know streaming and all this stuff it's a whole it's a different beast now and i i think i'm i'm just over it really i still i'm still a music fan and i still collect music and i still have a, a ton of guitars and amplifiers and recording gear and i've still got that but um you know I, five years ago i I had my first daughter, so that's that's been what I've been thinking about most of the time. Yes, she's now five, and I, I that's what I do. I I'm especially during COVID, I I, I teach her. Yes, well, absolutely. This is this is what reality is all about, isn't it? I know, I know a lot. Yeah. Of, a lot of uh, friends who are parents who have explained to me what it's like when. No, they're going back to school. No, they're not. They're coming back home. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm going right. to do something else today, but no, I'm not. So um, it's been very difficult. I think it's made sense. A few people a bit sort of, um, yes, crazy. But then, so just briefly then, so when you, when 
the band finished and and you know after you'd sort of carried on as well and it finished and then you you started to form another band did you then go straight not straight into but then engineering and getting in the studio was that then where you went and that's where you've kind of basically been for the last three two decades yeah pr pr pretty much yeah and 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 doing doing um stage shows you know live sound too but yeah that's that's been my um thing after after being in groups yes and did that did that it's okay up? i don't mind no absolutely i think most people i have spoke to it must have been a guy from Mega City Four. I think he started his studio and he does kind of sound work and I think goes on the road with Susie Quattro to do her recordings and stuff like that. And right. it's a bit like, well, you know, it's it's now more of a proper job. I mean, yeah, it's it, it's it's hard being a musician to continue on, especially in the rock pop music world, um, and make a living. It's it's difficult. Obviously, it's obviously very difficult right now, but um you have to you have to have a lot of look and uh, and you have to have a, a you know the real sense of really what to stick sticking with it it's but I, i'm i'm glad i did what i did and i'm proud of it yes well absolutely you, you've got you know you've um well it's it's like anything at least you've got something to show for that period of time which is yeah. which is quite you know brilliant i mean you know i I was just a music fan who, you know, religiously recorded the John Peel show on a TVK B90 cassette, you know, yep. and um, would just record 45 minutes each evening and then listen to it several times because it was all new music. And then, you know, like I said, bought the NME on a Wednesday and sort of went to gigs a lot. And But I didn't sort of get into playing in a band and have that experience and go through that process, which obviously... It's it's as David Byrne once said on Talking Heads. You know, you when you're on the stage, you're not the same as the person at the bar. You know, you're 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 one of the people there making it happen, and you've been rehearsing, and you're you know, so, this is what you've done. So, did brilliant. you ever try try and play music? No, I went to evening classes and had guitar lessons, and frankly, it didn't quite. I just would sit there at home and just go, oh, I'll just put on a record. It was <laughs> it was just you know, however much yeah. I kind of I didn't have that thing that I really. And also, I think in those days, getting a, a good guitar, which was quite easy and user-friendly, was quite a little bit tricky. I mean, I'm slightly making excuses for myself here, but I kind of realised that it probably wasn't the, you know, some of the things I tried weren't probably that easy to practice on. And I find it a bit, yeah. you know, I just would rather go and play record. A bit like John Peel, I suppose. I always thought, you know, I just love listening to music. I was, you know. Right. I, I think if 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 my older brother hadn't had a little classical guitar in in the house, I probably wouldn't have become a musician. It was his influence because he was playing drums and guitar in in local bands. That was a big influence to get me to to realize I could play music. Yes, I always loved singing. It, you know, even as a child, I'd always I'd always sing. So. It's pretty natural for me. And also you must have, you know, that confidence and a certain talent or skill that obviously you need to work at it, but to have that little bit of can tell whether you're in tune, whether your voice is good, whether, you know, the guitar sounds sounds like it should do. So you obviously have those, that ability. Oh, know. definitely, definitely. Um, and my, my little 
five-year-old daughter she she can definitely sing even now I can tell she's got pitch so it's you know it's definitely in the family we we're all not um bad musicians so just briefly when you were in New York doing your sort of um recording did you sort of get to go to things like CBGB's in the mud club and Max well we, play, we we played CBGB's in the mud club we played Irving Plaza, we played the Peppermint Lounge on our first tour, I think. Yeah, and uh, after Irving Plaza, we went, John Cale came backstage. He was friendly with our manager at the time. And we went up to John Cale's studio um, and we jammed all night long with him. And I think he was looking to see if we'd be part of a band with him. He was like auditioning. (laughs) And that was thrilling because the Velvets for me were such a great band and he especially very talented man. Yes, absolutely. That must have felt quite surreal. It was great. It was surreal. And, you know, it was the time of, of, uh, of drugs. He, he was definitely, um, well, I won't say, but it, it was a, a heady time, put it that way. Yes, well, I've done quite a lot of interviews with members of the bands from that New York scene from the late 70s and into the, the 80s. And, you know, I mean, most of the people have just said, yes, they, there was so much heroin that, you know, it was kind of hard yeah. somehow not to slightly find yourself. Heroin there. and coke. There was yeah. so much coke around at the time. And um, it was, you know, we probably couldn't imagine what it would be like. As you know, I wasn't there, obviously, but you, you obviously must have gone. Oh yes, it was a bit like cider, the equivalent of cider for us in the countryside, <laughs> you know. So it was kind of. I mean, there was a few people like there was one called Anna Magnuson who went into a band called Bondwater, and she, I think, she ran one of those clubs, and she said she just was somebody who didn't take anything, so that was okay. But most people, you know, it was almost like you, you virtually accidentally ended up taking something that you really wish you had. And also there was, you know, AIDS was happening as well. So New York was quite an amazing scene. And then you also had, because there's quite a lot of that rockabilly sound as well, wasn't there? There was bands like the Rock Cats who had started the Stray Cats and all that kind of scene. And those people who'd come from Essex with um, Lee Lee Black Childers, who was kind of on the scene with people like, you know, I suppose Andy Warhol and Robert Maplethorpe. So did you yeah. sort of brush up into that kind of world at all? Not really, no. Definitely downtown New York, the kind of seedy club thing we were definitely part of. And that, that, was, that was like, wow, this is really New York. And it's like, it, it was a bit seedy and, and dangerous, but it, it had that post-punk edge that was really... I think very, very creative. There was a, a load of bands just playing just because they wanted to play. Yes, that was quite amazing. Well, you, I suppose you had television and suicide and then there was the Ramones, obviously. And then as the, the 80s progressed, we got into, you know, talking heads and- Yeah, and I, I love like television that. to this day. Television, one of my favorite bands. There were people like Robert Lloyd who was in the band. Were, was, were they kind of quite influential to you? Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah, Berlin and yeah. So when you were in your sort of that period then, sort of onwards, just last thing, did you keep playing guitar, you know, even though it was just for yourself and sort of still 
practicing and rehearsing and, and sort of experimenting with music. Well, after, after Medium Medium? Yeah, and after your sort of other, well, other, other, you know, just as a sort of a, as an interest and a, as a passion, did you, you know, and do you still? I've never, music? yeah, I've never stopped playing guitar. I, I play guitar every day, even today. I, I, I've always loved the electric guitar. It's, it's like just one of those things that's been part of my life as long as I can really recall. And it's, it's still thrilling to me. Um, but I, after meeting, meeting, I did become an engineer, but then I was drawn into doing uh, session work as a guitar player. And I, I, there was a guy who signed from Nottingham called Wycliffe. And he, he was a, um, a, a, a soul singer, funk and soul, kind of Prince kind of right. thing. And we did, we did tours with that. And I went back on the road. And uh, that's what brought me to New York again, because the, the MCA executive at the time uh, lived in New York and she became my wife. So, and I moved to New York. Wow, um, it all makes, it all comes together, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and falls apart. We, that's not the, the person I live with now, but that lasted 10 years. But, um, and all that time I was in New York record, in recording studios, you know. So did you, have you, have you appeared Baby Monster on, recording, have pardon you, me. Have you appeared on quite a few um, albums and studio albums? Uh, mo mostly, no. I, I, I did kind of um, stuff for um, advertising. That's kind of inane. You need a guitar, play it in this style. Here's, here's your money. That kind of thing. Yes. Except for the Wycliffe thing, which got signed to MCA and he had three LPs released. So, and yes. that... That, that almost took off. And he was a very talented and great gifted singer. But yeah. it was blue-eyed soul, even though he was a, a black lad from, from uh, Nottingham. Interesting. It was The Commitments. Yeah. That was the film that I'd forgotten at the beginning, it, which, which kind of, the film came out and then there was lots of people who went from being into that Doctor feel good and um, nine below zero kind of pub band to oh well, actually let's just do soul music because that's what the crowd and the public right. love so I, I, I love Dr. Feelgood I, I remember before I got into bands I going down to see them at the at the boat club in Nottingham they were they were a really great live act they were they were definitely had a punkish attitude which I really loved yes well absolutely Wilco was such an amazing guitar player Wilco yes. I only saw them once, and that was without Wilco at the time. So look, interesting enough, if you could have said something to a, um, a 16 or 18-year-old self who was, you know, to yourself, okay. Yeah. This is often a bit confusing when I ask this question. What would you have said to them as they were starting out back then, you know, with the wisdom that you have an experience, say? An experience about getting into bands or, or... Or just, well, music as well as life. You know, if you could have just said, whispered something to that young kid yourself back then, and you could have just said, look, I'll just give you a few words. You might ignore it, but this is what I've learned. So here you go, kid. I, I, James I, Dean, doesn't it, really? 
Yeah, I, I would say just just go for it. Just if you think it's something that you want to do, just do it. But but do it to your fullest if you can. It's very difficult though, and really you should stay in college, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't. I you know I'm, I'm a dropout. So. <laughs> A successful dropout, yes. And did it feel difficult when you know Cacat Trance were sort of doing their thing in the 80s, or did you by then was that something that you were had made peace with, or did you sort of just want to ignore it? I'm sorry, ask me that question again. Yes, so you know, with members of the band who went to form Cacat Cacat Trance, and um, yes shake the mind did you were you sort of aware of that and and did, yes um, very much was it kind of something that you were okay with or did that feel quite difficult at times it, it, it was um i have to say i was um upset that john and, and nigel left the band because we were, we were just right on the edge of something that could have really taken off but we remained friends and have remained friends ever since and I liked what Kakat Trance did, even though it was, for me, it was too overproduced. But um, that's another story. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I love, I love John. I, I miss him a lot. So, yeah. um, and Nigel too. But, um, you know, these things happen. These do, they do. I do remember, you know, being obsessed with John Peel and he did play, Shake the Mind by Cacatrons. And there was also yeah. Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams, which I don't know right. why, but I put those two together. I think they were guys from Tears and Fears. But um, did you, did Shake the Mind, did you think that was a good single? I thought it was great. I thought it was really, really good. And dude, today I've got all the Cacatrons LPs. Um, Look, I just realised I had it next to me, actually. <laughs> I even bought a copy when John said it. It took yeah. ages to track down. Ink Records, there you go. Yeah. Right. So why? But yeah, so, sorry. I was gonna say, your your material is quite hard to get hold of, isn't it? You know. I think so. Yeah, but there've been so many compilations with Hungry So Angry on them that that, that, that song actually is, has had a life of its own. Every now and again, you see another compilation with Hungry So Angry on it. And I, I still get some money every year from that song. And so, you know, and it's, it's, I still like the song a lot. I think it's great. Yeah. It was basic, danceable, uh, and a little crazy, and, and very hooky. My, my, my kind of pop music, rather than, you know, too structured a... Uh, you know, like a Beatles song. I, I was never good at doing that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I just wonder if you, you know, because now with the, the modern age, whether you're still finding people are discovering them, you know, the band and the music for the first time, you know, you're sort of picking up new a new audience. Because, I, I, you know, I'm sure there are kids who are like obsessed with music like, like I was and always wanted to find the most obscure band you could so you could claim some sort of ownership. <laughs> which was yeah. important and I just wondered if you you sort of also realized because I think on Spotify you know I noticed that there's a big you know you have a big sort of monthly listen and also you know have we have we I'm I'm blissfully unaware of Spotify I, I don't I don't use it at all um 
I seem to remember sort of, I did sort of have a look because I, I kind of, I know that you had one, I think only one album on it. And I think that's kind of possibly a live album. And um, so I just wondered if you, you're also sort of aware that, that, that you were getting quite a lot of sort of air, well, not airplay, but you know, sort of interest still in the band. I, I'm sure, I'm sure there is, but it's not anything that makes all of us feel that we want to go and rehash it in any way. God, no, that would be a horrible idea. We've all, all moved on and, you know, like Alan, the bass player now is a retired senior, you know, I'm 62. So, it, but we did do those um, gigs in 2004 and 2009 and 2008, where we did some, um, we got back together and played in uh, Los Angeles and New York. And that was that was really a great load of fun, and but trying to get it back together seriously again is never going to happen. No, actually, that was quite relatively quite recently, I guess, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. And we did some recording, and it, and that that got released on a, a small label from where is it in, in the the Lake District? This one man. Oh, Optic Nerve Records. Optic Nerve, Optic Nerve. They they released um, the Glitter House plus these two twelve-inch single type things. In a, uh, and I don't know what, how it sold. I haven't heard anything since. I know, I know it got released, but I don't know um, how many copies were even uh, pressed. Yeah, but that's got some good material on. Yeah, no, I'm I'm aware of Optic now because he he's he's very good at his uh, reissues and he puts quite a lot of um yeah a lot of work into. Is, his is he still going? Is yeah, he still... my God, you, you should have a look at his website. He's always bringing out the most obscure sort of singles. Yeah, I, I I was I was I was very pleased when I discovered this whole thing. Yes, I know. Um, it, it it harkens back to you know the late seventies, early eighties, doing what he's doing. It's an old-fashioned record company, like, you know, uh, Rough Trade. I, I used to love that time, you know, all those and stiff, the stiff label and all that just put music out because they thought it was good. Yeah. Well, I noticed that, that he's come out and he's doing his kind of stuff. And there was a guy in, or guys in Germany called Fire Station Records, and they do stuff. And someone in New York called Cloudbury Records. And they also do lots of really obscure stuff that you think, oh, that's amazing passion you have for that because, and then obviously Cherry Red, who who are sort of slightly on a different league, I suppose. But yeah, so when you did those um, kind of concerts back in the O years, the mid O years, yeah. So what was the kind of reason? I mean, how did that sort of come together? Oh, for 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 the for you mean the Glitter House or, or no when? the 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 kind of live concerts in. Los Angeles and then also your sort of part-time punk festival actually that was also in Los Angeles at the Echo Plex. That, 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 that's what that's what what it was that we played at part-time punks. Yeah. Um, that, that cropped up because of Steve Harvey who's the drummer um, in the band. He's also a, a journalist and he, he's the editor of um, audio magazines he's like the editor of pro sound news for example and audio media and stuff like that so he's 
still in touch with a lot of these people and he he discovered that the people who were doing part-time punks wanted us to play and would we reform to play and we just said yeah okay give us the airfare and we'll all fly over and, and they did it and it was like it, it was a blast it was really, really... so yeah and we thought we were going to be able to maintain it but you know various commitments curtailed to any further work together really i think yeah well it's quite something but it's did it feel like without sounding like a bit of a new age hippie did it feel a bit like a nice process and a bit you know a nice way to sort of reconnect again and you know i'm trying to avoid yes it, it certainly did and, and what i discovered was the audiences for those part-time punk shows were very appreciative and very knowledgeable about our material and it was like whoa we could make something of this again if we wanted to but you know it kind of fizzled out yes well these things often do don't they but yeah, yeah. oh no it's, it's quite nice to, to sort of have that experience and also have a a nice reason to get together rather than someone's you know something which is a bit of a sad occasion so it must have been quite good i know that there's uh, las vegas does a bowling and punk weekend with lots of various bands which um apparently go down very well so um and it's good weather so it's good for the arthritis as well yeah it, it was it was fun getting getting to play with a certain ratio who we played with a lot in the early 80s you remember a certain ratio yes. that's manchester i think they're from and we played with them on that bill it was just fun to see them after all these years Absolutely. It must have been quite, quite something. Did it, because I remember doing an interview with Woody Woodmansey, who does a little gig for a, um, a band with Tony Visconti called Holy Holy. And when they do a tour, he said they just really just have a day rehearsal and then they, they, they just do it. You know, there's no messing about. Did you manage to sort of get your rehearsal and, and into shape quite quickly? Yes. Yes, we did. We, we... Um, John came down from Canada and we all flew to um, LA and we booked a, a, record, a rehearsal studio and we rehearsed for about a week, just, you know, four hours here every day. And that's what we did. And it, it was, that was great. That was great fun. Yes. I hadn't rehearsed with a band in so, so long and it was fun. I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. That must be nice. And on your, you know, on your website, you've got some amazing photographs. Who's the woman in them? In the in the sort of more of the eighties one. Okay, well, there's a story. After John and Nigel left, we became a three piece for a, a second, with me, bass, drums, and then that was my girlfriend at the time, Julie Wood, and oh. she became keyboard player after we had another keyboard player just before that who did a tour of Holland with us but then he, it didn't really work out he nice guy but he, he wasn't of the same mindset as, as, as we all and so in the end I said well Julie can play keyboards put her in the band I, I was all I was quite keen to have women in bands anyway it was it was you know there aren't enough in my opinion yeah. um, so she she um played on a, an american tour 
and we did some demos with her. Yeah, she was my my girlfriend at the time. Right. My and became a little later after that, Steve Harvey's girlfriend. That, that was part of a problem that, that caused the band to fold, I think. One of, one of the many um, symptoms. <laughs> uh, this all becomes a bit Fleetwood Mac in the end, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> God, do you keep, I mean, you obviously keep in touch with most of the members of the band. Do you keep in touch with every, you know, all the past members at all? Um, no, Al Alan, the bass player, Steve, Nigel, the previous drummer to Steve, I, and up until very recently, John Reese Lewis, who's up in Canada, but he's, 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 he's having problems, hoping that post COVID I'll, I'll go up to Toronto and see him, see how yeah. he, how he's doing. It's nice. And what happened to Julie after Steve Harley? Uh, uh, Steve Harley, there, there's there's a guy. <laughs> you remember Steve Harley? Yes, and I heard about him recently. Did he? Cockney Rebel, wasn't it? Cockney, Cockney Rebel, Rebel, yeah. And someone, and he had those. I know. I remember the pictures that Mike Mick Rock took of him doing a bit of a glam look, which didn't yeah. look very authentic, and anything like David Bowie. And then I think someone mentioned that he'd also found God, but I'm not sure if that was me. Just making that up, I'm getting it confused. It might be the case actually, but I can't. I can't remember if he sang God at all or not and appeared on Songs of Praise. Well, uh, uh, Julie, I don't know what happened to Julie. Uh, she went into the hotel business or something. Went up to Scotland. I, I, I'm not sure. I, we we definitely um, we we have emails every now and again, but then she disappeared. I don't know where she is. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. And Steve Harley, how did he sort of become, not part, but how did you sort of meet him during this period? Because he, he was definitely in the 80s. He wasn't really a sort of on the zeitgeist at this stage, was he? No, I, I don't know. I, I can't remember. <laughs> yes, well, he had that famous single, a bit like, you know, Hi Ho Silver Lining, which obviously it's just there, isn't it? You don't know how you know that, you know. Yeah. Come up and yeah. see me, make me smile. Until oh, the wedding present covered it as well, didn't they? In, yeah, they in did. The late eighties. So there you go. It's it's a it's exciting. Anyway, look, it's great that you've had such a great, you know, colourful musical career. It's given you so much. It it really has. Um, but going back to your question at eighteen, I, I would tell somebody do as many different things in music as you can don't just do a, a one pop band or a rock band try and diversify as much as you can so that that way you'll you'll have a living being a musician or being connected to music yeah what i'd say to a the 18 year old yeah well it's interesting because i did an interview with claire i think hurst is her surname she's a saxophonist in the bell stars then she appeared on David Bowie with um, Live Aid. She was a you know she played there. Yeah. And um, she said something very similar in the fact that she's her career has been in music, but it's because she's had to, you know, go from you know playing saxophone to keyboards to singing, you know, whatever yep. it's about. And you know, yep. it's like working with anybody who says, "Oh, actually, I'm doing a tour. I've got an album. Can you come and you know come and you know join in?" And um, you know, so she's done a lot of work with Hazel O'Connor in the last ten years. And, 
has got sort of more projects like that on the go. So yeah, right. That is, I think if you're going to try and make that as your career and not as a part-time little hobby, then that is exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's, it's the last twenty years, I've I've had a very stable recording career, recording other 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 people, and probably made more money doing this than ever I did in the in the eighties, where we owed so much money for a recording time and and signing dodgy publishing deals and stuff like that. That you, you know you, you end up not making any money. Yes, this is true. Anyway, look, just lastly, I just saw Spotify. So Hungry So Angry, it's got 1,500,000 listens and a monthly listeners of 33,000. So there you go. That's your statistics for the evening or day. There you go. It's been, it's been well played, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it turned up on TV spots in, in, in um, there was a a, a teenager Carrie Diaries I think it was called over here in America and it, it got played on that and it, it makes a little bit of money for us all every now and again which is it's, something to be said yeah so that's good actually I think it's also because it's on Cherry Red so they've got it on a lot of their compilations so well that's true but but it's also the fact that they they sold the publishing to Universal Music so Universal have hands in bigger places, and so they license that record a lot more than any of the other stuff, and so that's why that's been successful in monetarily, I think. So is that the single that that's the one? Because I did an interview with several of the members of Bauhaus, and they, for some reason, they own the rights to Bela Lugosi, just that one. I don't know. He sort of wanted to jump over that story. But that's the one that only gives them some money, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's commonplace, I think, amongst bands who don't have a huge you know, pop background where they have, you know, seven or eight top ten hits. That makes a lot of money. But um, one solitary one like Hunger So Angry, it's never going to make a ton of money. But yeah, that wasn't the idea at the time. And it's a nice uh, windfall every now and again, but it's it wasn't the, the point of making that music. Yes, well, not your retirement. Anyway, forty years later, it's still it's still very well used. And played. I know it's pretty incredible. Amazing. No, it's weird. Anyway, look, I'll let you get going. But thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And, no, that's um, very good. Yes, and do, if you want, do, I can always send you the link of the interview. And you can always put it. Do you have a Facebook page on your band or? Uh, there is a Facebook page for Medium Medium, but I don't know what it is. Someone I must do. Try and stay away from Facebook. I don't blame you. It's a murky world, though. It makes oh, Twitter seem quite nice, actually. Although, although I, I, I am on Facebook, but um, only so I can talk to my friends in England, you know, for free. Mm. But it's yeah. True. It sucks I, I, I had a question for you. you were, did you do something about the band Stump? Yes, I did an interview with a member of Stump, yeah. Because my, my friend, um, um, Dave Parsons. Oh, he, Pink Records. Yeah, uh, Ron Johnson Records, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he'd be an interesting man for you to talk to, I think, because he, he put a lot of 
really crazy good music out on his little label. I'll, I'll send you his email. And yeah, you... definitely. I mean, um, that's always good. Yes, yeah, so there's um, there was Stump, Bogshed, and and Big Flame who were sort of great sort of John Peel bands, weren't they, of the eighties? Yeah, well, Big Flame, Alan's a good friend of mine, Alan Brown, who's in Big Flame. Yeah, I did an interview with him in the autumn because he's got an album coming out. But then he said, "Could you not do the interview? Put the interview out quite yet?" So I don't know what's happened to the album. But yes, yeah, a great leap forward. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I go back a long time. Yes, excellent. Do you still? I mean, I know you put some pictures up on this face, uh, this website. Do you have much of you know an archive for the band and your sort of musical career? Um. Yeah, I have a, and and Steve Harvey probably has more than anybody. He's kind of the, the band's librarian, if you will. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I have a scrapbook of, of, of really nice photos about this big, these photos and of, of, of us um, on a New York um, building at night, you know, staring moodily into the camera. Some good, some good images. Yeah, definitely. Oh yes, I can see it. New York, nineteen eighty-one. Oh, God, that was forty yeah. years ago. Right. Interesting. <laughs> I know that is a very right. moody picture, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting footwear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kind of quite a quite a mashup there of styles, isn't there? Yeah, we 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 we're always mixed up. We, we never took one thing from, you know, we, we magpies. Yes, I like it. It's quite good. There's a bit of Echo and the Bunny Men meets kind of new romantic, actually, isn't it? Yeah, with, with the overcoats. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, this is great, great talking to you. I'm yeah. this chat. <laughs> That's great. Well, look, thank you ever so much. I'll let you go. But um, yes, this has been brilliant. Okay, well, look, take care and I'll keep in touch. Yeah, okay, you do Thanks so. Well. Cheers, bye-bye. Have a great time. Cheers. And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation. With such precision, or not. I know, I love to leave that in, because it always sounds very fumbly. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Andy Ryder from the band Medium Medium. A big thank you to uh, Andy for giving me the time for that interview. If you want to find out any more information about them, you can Google Medium Medium. There is a website, an official website. I don't know. And there's you know, material scattered around the place, probably on Cherry Red Records, as it always is. And also Optic Nerve, I believe. Anyway, look, this has been David East of the C86 show. I'm just babbling now. If you want to contact me for some random but nice reason, just do C86 show. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also, um, yeah, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 show again, and it's all there. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.